Let me say a few things about the problem of, of, of holy war. And I think we can start with a sort of a, a personal, kind of psychological understanding of ourselves. In general, and I'm not just speaking of myself, but of, of most people, most people are most angry in their interpersonal relationships when they come face to face with someone who is expressing or exhibiting your own fault, You're something that is problematic in your own character. Which is to say, you can give yourself the benefit of the doubt to the end of times because you have to live with yourself. But if someone else does something similar to you that you don't like about yourself, it's very easy to fall into like a visceral hatred. Right? One thing I don't like about myself, for example, is I tend to I tend to pretend to a certain competence, even when I have no idea what I'm talking about. You can call that a skill. Personally, I kind of hate that about myself. I'm not very good at admitting when I don't know what I'm doing. And that's the thing I live with. But the people in this world that I'm the most rude to, that I'm the most angry with, that I have the least amount of patience with, are people like that. People I'm like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You're all bluster. You're just an empty windbag. And if I'm thinking to myself, why does that anger me so much? Because well, I see it in myself. Now, I mention this because I find it an interesting historical trend that in the United States, at least, and not only in the United States, but in many other, let's say, those countries that are dominantly Christian, the way that they talk about let's call it jihad or Islamic religious struggles, violent ones. They have this sense that, well, it's disgusting that they would do this in the name of God. And they would say, you know, Christians used to do that, but we got it out of our system, right? This idea of, sure, the Crusades may have been a bad thing, or others will say, maybe they were a bad thing, but we didn't go far enough. So, Again, I'm not trying to like convince you of one way or the other, but I, what world history would tell me is holy war or, or killing in the name of some grand idea or, or God or ideology, that's not specific to any religion or culture or time. That seems to be one of the main motivating forces of all mass murder, for better or for worse. So... The term crusade just means to, to put a cross on something. So if you literally get a tattoo of a cross somewhere on your body, I could call you a crusader and I would not be wrong. Because there's nothing to do with fighting. It has nothing to do with like dying for God. It literally just means put a cross on yourself. And it comes out centuries after the things we call crusades. <clears throat> All right, so the timeline of the Crusades is, roughly speaking, the 11th, the, the very end of the 11th century, mostly the 12th, ending in the 13th century. So if you want to, if I put a date on it, it'd be roughly from the 1090s 
to the, let's call it the late 1200s. So maybe like the 1240s, the 1250s. And there, there are things that happen after, things that happened before, but quote unquote crusades. This term crusade comes from maybe the 1500s. So what does that mean? It means the people who went on crusade didn't say that. That's not a word that existed. They didn't say, here I am, mom, I'm going to be a crusader, because the word didn't exist. The first time the word crusade is used in English that we know about is in the 1700s. Now it's used in French and Italian before that. The people who went on crusade to the Holy Land to liberate Jerusalem or what have you used two words, both of them Latin, iter and peregrinatio. So they're, they're going on a journey, they're going on a pilgrimage. We can take a couple of conclusions from this. One, this idea of marking yourself with a cross probably was not as important as we, as we think it was. It, it's very symbolic, it's lovely, this idea of someone putting on this white piece of cloth and then putting a big cross on it to show everyone, look at me, I'm going to the Holy Land. And probably some people did do that, but most of the people going on the Crusades are not wealthy. They don't have an extra piece of cloth that's doing nothing. And they don't have the means to dye some of it red or, or sew something else onto it. it. This idea that every single person in Europe wants to put on a cross and march to Jerusalem, that, that's just, there's nothing to support it in the histories. There are many individual so-called crusades, and we separate them basically into the start and stop of, of violence. Because in a certain understanding, that's what this is. 200 years of war launched from Europe against the Holy Land. war that is brought there from Europe supposedly in the name of liberating Jerusalem but what's kind of most interesting about this is there's nothing in Christian ritual or Christian tradition that requires that let's say Bethlehem be inhabited by Christians or Jews or anybody and that's good because Bethlehem is and has been for more than a thousand years, a Muslim town, just like Nazareth. Jerusalem is a little bit bigger city, so it's a little bit more diverse. But there's no rule anywhere that says Jerusalem should be ruled by a Christian, which again I say is good because it's not, nor has it really ever been. Even when we talk about the successful crusades, there's so few Christians there, they can't do anything without the say-so of friendly Muslims and friendly Jewish people. Now the first crusade 
is in many respects the only crusade. It's the one that's the best studied, the best understood. It's also the only one that seems to be spontaneous. I mean, it seems to be unplanned. There's nobody at the head of it. It really does seem to be a popular revolt, right? Where we actually have people who are doing things because they believe it's the right thing to do, not just because their king is paying them or threatening them if they don't go. It's also far and away the largest. Now the numbers are difficult to guess at, but just going off the sources, I would say it's on an order of 10 or more times larger than anything else that happens. It's also the only crusade in which the majority of people are actually pilgrims, not knights, not people carrying swords or bows and arrows. The majority of them literally are just poor people who have walked, who have walked almost the entire way from wherever they might be in eastern parts of Germany or France. In England, obviously, they get in a boat to get to France, but then walking the rest of the way. It's also the most successful. Because they have this sense of, if we all just go there, well, they can't kill all of us, right? Some of us are going to get through. It's also the only one that lands in this very opportune moment when there are two Muslim political powers that are currently fighting over something else. But it does mean that there's limited military presence to fight them off. This helps explain why the later Crusades are so unsuccessful. Because generally speaking, when the Europeans arrive, they're facing a unified political and military force. So I'm here, I'm calling it the first Itad, but if you want to call it the first crusade, because that's easier to remember, that's fine. So before the crusades, the Holy Land has long since fallen to the Islamic expansion, right? The major cities of the Holy Land have been predominantly Muslim since the 800s. So here we are in the 1000s, and the Muslim expansion is continuing ever so slowly under the Turks, who are taking over various towns and settlements and the emperor of Romania, or the Byzantine Empire, is concerned because major battles in fortified locations are being lost. There's a sense that there's nothing more that we can do. We need help. Envoys are sent from Constantinople to Rome. Listen, I know we don't always see eye to eye. We need help, send money. Send men, send knights, send crossbowmen, send something. A show of, let me make this clear. He's not saying, send me everything you have. 
You don't have to send much. You can send me 50 guys. Why would that matter? Because if you send me 50 guys, then the Turks in Nicaea will understand, oh, if we fight them, we have to fight the Romans too. Because up to this point, the Byzantines look so weak because it's understood they're by themselves. Most of Christianity doesn't care about them, by which I mean the rest of Christendom, Western and Northern Europe. A letter is sent to the Pope saying, listen, let's just, you know, bygones be bygones. Send us something so that we can show the Turks that we're friends and they'll stop fighting us. The Pope, Urban II, receives this note. And again, this is one of those strange coincidences. When he receives this letter, he is at a council. The council was already called. It's not a, it's not a council called specifically to start a crusade. It's, you know, something that happens pretty regularly in the Catholic Church. And I say regularly, meaning like every 40 to 60 years. A council is called to discuss, you know, doctrinal changes, what bishops are doing, how, to, how many cardinals should we have. And at this council, there are several kings and other like secular, non-church figures. And so the Pope reads the letter aloud saying, what do you all think about this? What should we do? Well, the popular story is the council erupts into mad cheers of the Polish and the German and the Irish and the Spanish and the French kings and bishops saying, Deus Volt! God wills it! We will go and liberate Jerusalem! The problem with this story is the letter from Constantinople doesn't say anything about Jerusalem. He doesn't care about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a part of his empire. And it hasn't been. Right? Not since, let's say, the third or fourth century. That is not a concern. He's asking for people to help defend Constantinople. This council has produced a lot of historical attention, right? Because of the importance of the Crusades in religious history, hundreds of books and academic articles and not academic things have been written about it. If you want to look this up online, I warn you now, if you're not careful, you could very easily find things that have, that have no, no connection to reality. Many people talk about this as though we had like a Hollywood screenplay, knowing exactly who said what to whom. We don't. Historically, I can accurately say the council took place. And that's about all I can say. I know when it happened. And I have a rough idea of who was there, but I don't have a guest list. But if I want to look on the internet, I can find somebody who will give me a blow by blow, play by play, what king said what. What did the Pope say to this? Because people have made it up. They want to have a movie, a, a story version of the Crusades. So I can tell you this is when it happened. And I can tell you that this, the speech, which is to say the Pope reading the letter, happened on November 27th. And Wikipedia will tell you this is when the Crusades began. It does not mean that on the 28th, 
10,000 people stepped out of their homes and said, no step backwards, every step towards Jerusalem. Well, you can read that on the internet. Here's the problem. It's a speech, right? He's delivering this discussion on the letter and it's, there's no CNN, okay? How do we share this letter with the rest of Christendom? And the answer is, well, you write it down and you send it around. You send a letter to Poland. You send a letter to the King of Ireland. You send a letter to England or France. And those letters that survive are not the same. I don't think the Pope is sending different copies of the letter. I think the copies have been altered, have been doctored over time. Some of these letters do actually say the Pope is calling us to free Jerusalem. But most of them say nothing about the Holy Land. Because the original letter said nothing about the Holy Land. You begin to see now what the struggle is, right? Like, how do we get to the bottom of this? The oldest surviving original letter happens to be from the Pope to the people of Flanders up in the, the Low Countries. And the only line about the Holy Land that you can understand is, we're here for the liberation of the Eastern churches. Okay, I guess that could mean the church that's in Jerusalem, but there's nothing specific. So, however this letter is portrayed to its people, we see a mass movement of people. Essentially, there are two crusades. There's the People's Crusade, the one that happens first, Again, I don't know what sets these people off. I don't think we can know. My guess is that versions of the letter of the Pope are read aloud at Mass. And people are told to go on pilgrimage, peregrinatio. You should go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land because to do so, you will acquire merit. You will be able to have your sins forgiven. And if you die, you'll be a martyr, right? Great will your reward in heaven be because if you are killed, there's no better place to be. And I wanna make this clear to you. I don't think they're going out with this bloodthirsty sense of I want to kill for the Holy Land so much as I want to die for the Holy Land. The second crusade happens later, but because of the money involved, they get there in the same time, okay? The People's Crusade, they are walking. The Nobles Crusade, they ride horses, they ride in ships. The point is, is they all join up in the city of Constantinople, which is the city they are called to. Now I want to make this very clear to you. By the time these two forces are sitting outside the walls of Constantinople, because they are not allowed inside, they have already caused mass death and destruction. Specifically in these parts of Eastern Europe, because by this point, 
There are so many people walking that every town they come to is terrified of them, even if we're friendly. Okay, if 30,000 people just walk down 40 and they're hungry and they need something to eat, they're going to stop here and they're going to eat your food. Maybe they'll pay you some money for it, but the point is you're not going to eat anything. Not until they eat. And that's assuming that they have goodwill towards you. Most of the people who die in Europe will be the Jewish communities, because for whatever reason, this coincides with some of the first anti-Semitic pogroms. These, you come upon a city, you find a Jewish center, and for some reason, they consider this a threat. Much more damage is done in Europe than is done to the Holy Land, under, which is you know, in the control of the Seljuk Turks. And yet, people talk about the Crusades as this great movement of justice, right? We're going to retake the Holy Land. And they do, okay? This is the only time that they actually succeed. And it largely is because it's true. You can't stop everyone. Tens of thousands of people banging on the door of a city that only has 20,000 people in it, they're going to get in. At least before the age of the machine gun. I would say that the, the, the messier history of the Crusades begins in 1099, because now that they have retaken the city, they realize they've given zero thought to, well then, now what? Now what? And, and why are they in Jerusalem at all? Because when they arrive in Constantinople, they're not allowed in the city. And the emperor says, well, um, gosh, we were kind of hoping for like 50 dudes and a pile of gold. What are we supposed to do with you? Go make yourselves useful. Right? Jerusalem is that way. So there's no connection between these people and the Byzantine Empire, right? The, the emperor who called for help. This is not the help he asked for. So the argument that I'm trying to make here is I think it is worthwhile to ask the question, why did the Crusades happen when they happened? Why did Christendom suddenly only care about retaking the Holy Land in the end of the 11th century? Why did they care in the 9th century or the 8th century? And if I had to answer that question with a minimal of evidence, I would say, yeah, the Vikings. Right? Because what has just happened in the 11th century is for the first time, more of the Vikings are Christian than not. Right? If I talk about the 8th century or the 9th century, most Vikings, and there are thousands upon thousands of them, most of them are pagan. But it's as they are Christianized, as they're baptized, as they're converted and brought into the church, they have the same problem that the earlier converts had. You're really not supposed to kill other Christians. I mean, ideally. Of course you will in war, but you're really not supposed to plunder them 
You're not supposed to rape them or pillage their towns. But what's interesting is the sources we have on the Crusades, again, they're not called Crusades, but the sources we have from that time make it very clear that the, the people on Crusades, people who are on this pilgrimage, those who have swords, those who have armor, look like Vikings. I don't just mean like, I don't mean like their eyes or their hair. I mean, they, they dress like Vikings. They travel in ships that you and I would recognize as some kind of longship. They wear helmets that we associate with Vikings. And this is worth pointing out because European arms and armor of the 8th and 9th century were different. They looked very Roman, which is what we'd expect, right? They're looking back to the older military styles. They would have a Roman style of sword, a Roman style of helmet, a Roman style of shield. That's not what we see during the Crusades. And when we say Crusaders and Crusading nobility and the Crusading Lords, when they set up shop in the Holy Land, it looks identical to the way in which the Vikings settled England or Northern France or parts of Russia or areas of Newfoundland. They don't call themselves Vikings. No one calls them Vikings because now they are Christian. Remember in the previous class where I said like, yeah, at what point do we start calling a Viking a Viking? Do they have to be pagan? Do they have to use long chips? Do they have to use a specific kind of axe or wear a specific kind of shield? This is why I'm asking you this because no one calls the Crusaders Vikings, right? This is not a thing. You will not find like, oh, Crusaders equals Vikings. What a cool story. What's interesting is during the Crusades, which are extremely bloody, we do have a handful of sources from, I guess, very conscientious Christians saying, I don't think this is what we're supposed to do, guys. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could turn Jerusalem into a bloodbath. There are other classes that I teach, specifically the History of Islam class, where we read these sources. They are difficult. They are, the, the level of violence and the graphic nature of what they're describing are not easy reading. And so I typically don't want to throw it at freshmen. Or, well, whether or not you're a freshman, I don't want to throw it at, in a 100-level in a history course. So, I know that says Meshkowski Bible. You might, wondering, you might be wondering, how can a Bible teach us anything about the Crusades, right? The Bible is the Bible. It's going to have the same stories as every other Bible. It's going to be about Abraham and Jacob, right? It's going to be about Israel and Judah. The key is, this is an illustrated Bible. <clears throat> it only includes stories that have battles and violence because many Bibles of this time are specialized Bibles made on order. Someone has asked, give me the Bible with just the sexy bits in it. I mean, those Bibles exist. Give me a Bible just with the stories of like fighting. And they're illustrated. So what makes this special, it is from the middle portion of the Crusades. 
And what makes this valuable is the people who are drawn in this, this is where I come back to where I said about religious art. They are supposedly drawing pictures of Bible times, of Bible stories, but they don't know what those people look like. Right? They, they just don't know. So when they draw a picture of, I don't know, Joseph at the head of an Egyptian army, or Joshua outside the walls of Jericho, they're dressed like crusaders. They're dressed like medieval people fighting. And this allows us then to compare this to the archeological record and say, oh yeah. Yeah, they're wearing Viking helmets, carrying Viking swords. This is when I say like a religious artist is special because it gives you a sense of what the people drawing it look like. The other thing I point out is the people illustrating this Bible are not soldiers. So don't be too harsh, right? They're not military experts. They're just people hired to make pretty pictures. So what these are supposedly illustrating are battles between the ancient Assyrians and the Hebrews. Now, hopefully you remember enough from class, like this is not what the ancient Assyrians and Hebrews looked like. For one thing, they didn't have stirrups. Like, stirrups didn't exist yet. And chainmail didn't exist yet. Like people fighting in the desert in the Holy Land probably didn't wear a lot of metal. It's so flipping hot. But the point we would draw here is that this kind of helmet, these kinds of swords, this kind of material, we recognize as coming from the Vikings. So we see the kinds of hats and coifs they wear, the fact that lots of people in the army don't have any armor at all, and the people who do have armor just have chain mail because it's cheap and easy to make. There's a lot of anatomical detail. These are people who know what it looks like if you've been, somebody's been cut in half. Right, they, they, they make some attention. When they show a head cut open, they show a brain in there. When they see somebody cut in half, they show intestines. All of these elements we associate as historians and archeologists with the Vikings. And one of the things we get from Vikings is Vikings are not that familiar with horses yet. So nowhere will you see anyone wearing a boot or anything with a heel. It's funny because we now associate the heels on shoes with femininity, right? The idea like that the higher the heel, the more feminine this feature is. It's weird how history works. The only reason shoes have heels in the first place is to ride horses. That's what the heel is for, to hitch your foot into the stirrup. So if you're seeing older pictures of like European kings and queens and you think, man, that king has very high heels on his shoes. Yeah, because he rides a horse every day. Which is also, if you think about it, why cowboy boots have pretty pronounced heels. We now, it's, it's weird how these things happen, right? How does the heel go from being a symbol of status? That's what it is, a symbol of status. You're rich enough to ride a horse. You need a heel on your shoe. But at this time, they don't exist yet. There are no boots with heels. 
Oh, yeah, okay, so typical helmets. So here's the thing. This one's from the Crusades. This one's from the 800s, a Viking helmet. This one's from the 1000s, a Viking helmet. They are not Roman style. They are all of the same type. We call it a Norman helmet or a Viking helmet. And again, I'll just point out how interesting it is, right? No boots. They usually just have just their feet wrapped inside chain mail, right? They don't wear shoes or boots. And they're not too clear on what horses look like. I, mean, I don't want to make fun, but it's kind of like a big dog, basically. Because it's very likely the person drawing these pictures doesn't own a horse himself. Right? They're very expensive, something that only the wealthy would own. But at the same time, it gives us this sense of this mishmash of Viking culture and what happens when Vikings get get horses. Okay, so let's start with some misconceptions. Misconceptions, things that are not true. Mongols are evil savages from hell. <laughs> and I'll explain when I say this misconception here. The problem is by the great coincidences, happenstances of history. Nice. Got to be faster on the tab switch, buddy. Um, there's a tribe amongst the Mongols called the Tatars. When certain Europeans hear about these Tatars, they confuse them, naturally, with the Tartars. This is the Greek word for hell, right? Tartarus the underworld, where Hades lives. And so when the Mongols are understood to be Tartars, it's like, oh, okay, boom, there you go. They are not like demons from hell. They literally are from hell. Another misconception is that Genghis Khan is a serial mass rapist. Right, that basically everywhere the Mongols go, they kill everybody they, they, don't, they, well, they want to, gather all the women together and do with them as they will until they leave for the next place. Some people equate the Mongols as sort of like the medieval equivalent of an atom bomb, right? They show up and they turn a town into an X town. They see a city and they wipe it from the face of the earth. They kill every single man, woman, and child there. They tear down the buildings brick by brick. They're seen as nomads, which is to say most Americans don't understand, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying they should, right? Nomadism is so far removed from us. We see of nomads as just aimless. That's the way we use the word, okay? Right, like I'm saying as a modern American, if, if you find out, let's say you've lived in one town your whole life, you go away to college and then like six months after college, you get an apartment in one town, and then six months later, you get a different apartment in a different town. And three years later, you get a new job in another apartment. And you find out over 10 years, you lived in six places. And people say, wow, what a nomad you are. That's not what the word nomad means. I mean, it is today. Like now nomad means someone without a home. That is a misconception. Like that's not what the word nomad means. The nomads live with their animals. But they don't just go wherever they want. They don't follow the animals. It makes more sense to think of a nomad as someone with multiple homes. Right? In, in the area around Mongolia, as in most of Asia, nomads tend to have three or four, call them homes, call them encampments. 
The difference is they take their home with them, right? They live in tents. And I don't mean like your Coleman style flimsy, like in Mongolia, it is regularly 40 below zero. Their tents are made out of felt so that they can survive in that weather. They have one pasture they use for the winter, one pasture they use for the spring, another pasture for summer. And they go to the same pastures every year. They're their pastures. That territory is owned by them. They're not wandering, aimless people. But to outsiders, that's how they appear because they don't build fences. Right? I mean, that's how they appear. They don't build roads. They don't build fences. They don't build permanent buildings because they're not going to be any one place all year round. They're seen as being some sort of devil worshipers or heathens or shamanists or sometimes just a religious, meaning they have no religion at all. Again, all of these are misconceptions. I would say the most problematic of these is the one related to Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan must have been some sort of like mass rapist. So here's the issue. Thanks to genetic studies, we now know that one in 200 men in the world are direct descendants of Genghis Khan. So you see this, and unfortunately, the easiest conclusion to jump to for the average person is, oh man, he must have had a lot of babies. That's not the conclusion we should jump to, but it's the one that's the most intuitive, right? We don't understand how else could this be. Let me make this more clear to you. If you lived when Chinggis Khan lived and you had children who also lived, you also are like Abraham, the father of nations, right? You also have millions of descendants. Here's the key difference. Those descendants living today in 2020 know that they are descended from Chinggis Khan. These are not just randomly tested people. Scientists said they were doing this test. These people showed up at a place, knocked on the door, said, yeah, my family knows we're, we're descended. Yeah, I'm just here, you know, give me the cheek swab. I'll have my test come back. How do they know that they're descended from Chinggis Khan? Because it is worth knowing. Throughout most of North and Central Asia, not that long ago, those political states were ruled by descendants of Chinggis Khan. It's sort of like being descended from King Arthur, okay? If you knew you were descended from King Arthur, you would not keep it a secret. You would want to know, you would want everyone to know, like, I am descended from the rightful ruler of England, as there's everyone else, all these other millions of people. Let me make this more clear to you. Chinggis Khan had four sons. We know their names. We know the names of their children and their children's children. But you went, you went, you get far enough away, the family tree gets a little muddled, right? This is a family tree I actually have in my office. It's pretty amazing to see. It's a poster that's this big. It's full of text that is this big. And it's just the family tree of Chinggis Khan. This is not a mystery because they're not uncivilized barbarian savages. They can read and write. They care about history. Why do they want to know that they're descended from Chinggis Khan? Because he is the greatest superhero-like figure that any of these people could ever imagine. And hopefully you will understand why here in a little bit. I want to make this also clear to you. This idea that one in 200 men in the world is descended from Chinggis Khan, 
It is largely because this is one of the most populated parts on the planet. Okay? So like, yes, in this area, it's a lot more than one in 200 men. Right? You get to places like Kazakhstan or northern China, and it's like one in 50 men. So it just doesn't mean that there are descendants of Chinggis Khan walking around in Brazil. I don't think there were many. Or New York City. But when you talk about China and Korea and southern Russia, there's a lot of people there. Okay, so at the same time that Chinggis Khan is walking around the planet, Christian Europe, as we understand it, is not doing so hot, right? The Crusades have been much, much worse for Europe than they were for the Holy Land. To the point where the Fourth Crusade, which I would say is probably the, the most important after the first one, is abortive. It dies in the cradle. It involves people showing up to Constantinople and instead of continuing on to Jerusalem, just burning down the city of Constantinople. Constantinople, which the Huns could not take, which the Muslims could not take, safe behind its walls with its Greek fire, is taken from within by the very Christian forces that have supposedly come to save it. I'm sure there's a lesson in there for us to learn if we're, let those with ears hear. At this point, the most powerful parts of Europe and North Africa are those which are furthest to the west, furthest away from both Rome and Constantinople. If you were a kid, you might remember, because you learned in like sixth grade that this is when the Magna Carta is signed. We're not really concerned with the Magna Carta. I'm just saying, if, if this is a point in your mind map, much more distressing is the Albigensian or Cathar Crusade. If you've never heard of this, maybe don't eat a big meal when you look this up on YouTube, because not a pretty sight. Like many of the Crusades, it is mostly about interreligious violence. Christians killing other Christians, as most holy wars have been and are today. Right? Christians killing people they think are bad Christians. Muslim killing people they think are bad Muslims. Buddhists killing people they think are bad Buddhists. That is, that is the real lesson from world history. And of course, these other abortive half-attempts at crusades and none of these is well studied or well understood in comparison to the First Crusade because most of them are quite small affairs led by one king or another trying to retake Jerusalem. Okay, so I want to lay some groundwork here. So just like Crusade wasn't a word, Mongol did not mean like we think it means. The word existed, but it was the name of one specific tribe amongst all of these nomads. There were many tribes, the Tatars, the Naiman, the Wusun. Mongol happened to be the tribe that Chinggis Khan was from. Part of what's going to allow his rise is as he conquers all these other tribes, he just tells them, well, we're all Mongols now. Yeah, you're sure you're a Naiman, but the Naiman is now a sub-tribe of the Mongol. They are people who ride horses, who eat horses and sheep and goats. They do not eat bread. Mostly it's meat and dairy products, and the dairy is like, you know, from their animals, whether this is sheep milk, which 
you know, it's not that easy to get. Horse milk, which is much easier to get and quite nutritious. Their number one concern, wolves. The wolves of the Siberian steppe are the figures of nightmares. Throughout all of Mongol history, they are far more concerned with wolves than they are with other people. A man is easy to kill. And every shepherd, every Mongol on his yurt, in his yurt out in the steppe, has to be able to defend his flock of sheep or goats or horses from wolves. This is part of what makes their military so strange for other people, because none of them is, quote-unquote, a trained fighter. You don't wrestle a wolf. You want the wolf to be dead long before it gets to you. And so their military is made up of shepherds, each of whom is very skilled at killing something from far away that wants to eat you. They have a very close relationship with towns, but they don't live in towns. Right? The towns are where the people who that want to buy their horses live, want to buy their horse meat, want to buy their leather, their felt, yogurt for another one. A yogurt is, is one of these, you know, Turkic Mongolic words that we don't really take notice of anymore. The next time you drink your, I don't know, yogurt drink or eat your yo play. Understand that you are enjoying the meal of Central Asian nomads. May it make you strong and wise. Okay, so Chinggis Khan is not his name. His name is Timujin. Means blacksmith or ironsmith. Timur means iron. Jin is the equivalent of, of saying uh, like ER, like uh, teach, teacher, bake, baker, that kind of thing. In his 40s, he will have successfully united several of these nomadic tribes. Each one of these tribes is ruled by a Khan. So because he is now the Khan over several Khans, they give him this title, Chinggis Khan. So Chinggis is a word that comes from Sanskrit through Tibetan into Mongolian, originally meant ocean, but that's not how they use the word. They use it to mean universal, or all-powerful, or limitless, because the ocean is limitless. 1211 invades northern China, takes Beijing, leads the conquest of Central Asia against Khwarezm. I know this word might seem terrifying to you, but the funny thing is this is actually a word that you know in a different form. Khwarezm is the home of one of the foundational geniuses of advanced mathematics. The person who invented algebra as we understand it was one person named Al-Khwarezmi, who in Europe, his name is spelled Al-Gorithm. Al-Gorithm is a person, Al-Khwarezmi. But now we only remember this as this mathematical function, an algorithm. It's weird how these things work, but if you want to think of this as the place where math comes from, be my guest. What had happened is, after the taking of Beijing, after the conquest of northern China, the Mongols send envoys of peace to the Khwarezmian Empire in Central Asia, asking for trade, asking to be treated as equals, and the response, as you see, is violence. 
they behead the envoys sent by Genghis Khan, who retaliates by annihilating the Khorezmian Empire and absorbing it, whereupon Genghis Khan dies while in northern China. If this were the act of someone like Alexander the Great, I would expect this to be the end of the story. But it's not. Genghis Khan is nowhere near the zenith, the, the height of the Mongol power. It's because of the way he raised his family, the way he raised his children, who take up after him and whose children's children take up after them, the Mongol Empire does not come out of nowhere and then disappear. Let me make this very clear to you. The last Mongol state, the last time that there was a country whose ruler is the ruler because of their descent from Genghis Khan, disappeared in 1918. It fell thanks to the Russian Revolution. That ruler, when he was deposed, was the last living political descendant of Chinggis Khan. And his children are still walking around today, well, at this point, great-grandchildren. There are millions of people who walk around and can say with clarity and now scientific proof, yes, I am a descendant of Chinggis Khan, right? His blood flows through my veins. When Chinggis Khan died, his Khanate was already twice the size of the Roman Empire, and not even half of the size it would be under his sons and grandsons. So let me explain what I, when I say that what makes it so amazing. This is what's different. This is how he is not like the Romans, how he's not like Alexander the Great. His sons are the most important possession in his life. Like his son, his love and respect for his sons is not something we expect to see in a powerful ruler, right? We understand the power corrupts. You think about Alexander the Great, how did he come to, to take control through the ruthless murder of his, the rest of his family? That's not what happens here. Genghis Khan has four sons. He realizes he's going to die, and so he has a frank discussion with his sons. Let's talk it out. Which of us should rule? And they decide on Ogadir because he's the nicest, literally, right? Because, because no one ever gets angry at him. He's the best negotiator. He always gets what he wants. Maybe he's not the best fighter. Maybe he's not the best thinker, but he's the best politician. And you might think, yeah, whatever, it's all talk. But the point is, when Chinggis Khan dies, he's with his fourth son, Kalui. Ogadir is thousands of miles away. Louis holds the throne, writes a letter to his brother saying, throne's here waiting for you, and gives it up. That is what makes Genghis Khan amazing. At this point, he's dead, and yet what he has actually created is a functioning royal family that actually looks out for themselves that isn't just absorbed with corruption and lust for power. That will creep in over time. It takes a couple generations, though. So here's a fun question, right? Does environment affect history? Easy answer, sure it does, of course it does, right? We can look at like climactic battles that might have gone this way or another, you know, uh, people who die in freak weather occurrences, tornadoes or earthquakes or what have you, right? The planet is a dangerous place. 
A different question to ask is, does environment cause history? The environment definitely has a direct effect on the natural, like on, you know, the ecology, right? Birds and animals and plants, bacteria. But are people just a powerless part of that? And so, unfortunately, for many climate scientists, not all, but some, they look at the Mongol conquest and they think, gosh, that makes no sense. How can a bunch of illiterate barbarian savages from Northern Asia do such amazing things? There's really no way we could possibly understand it. It must be the climate. One option is for them to go back and be a good historian and just read what the people in the 1200s say. But that's boring and they're probably just lying. So you know what? Let's study tree rings instead. I don't want to make fun of climate science. Right? Climate science is really important. There are many important lessons to be gained from it. But understanding why the Mongols conquered the world is not one of them. So tree ring studies are pretty amazing. Right? It's, it's a very new branch of study, believe it or not, even though tree rings are so old. The main thing is the size and the you know, variety of tree rings are they're affected by a lot of different things, right? On the base level, you think, oh, cool, okay, I can, I can judge like wet year, dry year, cold year, warm year. I could, you know, check like how windy a certain place is, or is there a lot of disease in this area, diseases that affect trees. The problem with this is to do tree ring studies, I need a place that is forested and has been forested for hundreds of years. So I take the living tree, I cut it down, I measure its rings, I compare it to this standing dead tree that goes back further, I compare that to a dead tree on the ground, I compare that to a dead tree that's in a bog somewhere, preserved, and I can go back hundreds of years, sometimes more than a thousand. Here's the problem. The Mongols ruled the steppe. There are no trees in the steppe. That's why it's the steppe. Right? It's the grassland, so there, there's no way to know what the weather is doing using tree ring studies. Now, if I'm using the sources, reading Chinese or Arabic or Persian or Mongolian, I learned some very interesting things about the Mongols. One, unlike everyone they face, they prefer winter. That's when they want to be fighting, because they don't want to be in Mongolia in the winter. They complain about how hot everywhere else is. It doesn't matter where they're going. And I'll remind you that almost every winter, Mongolia can hit 60 below zero. So they're not gonna invade Russia like Napoleon and think, oh, it's so cold here, right? No, it's much warmer than we're used to. The Mongols did not act randomly. They did not respond to like a very cold or a very warm year. Even though we might not understand why they attacked, all we have to do is read the sources left behind. So I guess the lesson I would leave for you is this. If you want to do climate science to explain why the Mongols acted, then at least be fair and ask how the climate affected Alexander the Great, how the climate affected Julius Caesar or Charlemagne. But they don't, right? Climate scientists focus on barbarian savages. So you'll see climate studies on the, the Apaches, the, the Huns, the Mongols, because there's the understanding is, well, those people, they're, they're a little more than animals. And I just don't think that's, 
don't think that's true. 